Hello everyone, this is Samaj McDowell, and I would like to welcome you all back to the Geopolitical Pivot uh, podcast. We took a bit of a hiatus because of just the sheer madness uh, that has kind of crippled the United States over the past few weeks. Uh, it's a very surreal yet predictable turn of events. The onslaught of what happened on January 6th was predictable. It was an intelligence failure. It was a physical security failure. However, it was not a governmental failure, as witnessed yesterday with the peaceful transition of power from Donald J. Trump, former President Donald Trump, to now 46th President. Joe Biden. The American experiment, the American model that we so try to promote overseas since the days of Woodrow Wilson and the dawn essentially of liberal internationalism prevailed. Granted, there's always doubts about the true strength of democracy, as it is a very frail, very fragile system that constantly always brings on the questions of well, how long can it prevail? As the United States is much more diverse now as it was since its, its inception, democracies tend to fall under its own weight. And now that we are the longest standing democracy, a constitutional republic, these conversations, especially over the past four years, has been one of great volume. You know, there's been books about, you know, for example, how democracies die. There have been new books on polarization or the American polarization trying to explain well, where, where exactly through our polarized mentalities originate from. And quite frankly, the, the two Americas that are present has always been here since the, the formulation of the original 13 colonies. I mean, through the geographical locations of the colonies, there were two distinct systems, essentially. Um, between North, the New England colonies and the more southern colonies. There were religious differences, and through those religious differences established much more cultural differences, societal differences, government institutional uh, differences. And through then, it was a, a fostering moment that led eventually to the Civil War. That is traceable. The same way that where we are now as a country is traceable. It is traceable back to the Reconstruction period. It is traceable back to the issues or the remnants of the ending of the Civil War. It just traces back to Things such as the Tulsa Massacre, 
Black Wall Street. It is traced back to the Black Codes, which then turned into Jim Crow, which then turned into the, the return of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. Once immigration, urbanization, and industrialization had really set in at the turn of the century. It came back, it came around, the dawn of FDR and New Deal, and it continued to fester in the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Civil Rights Movement, hell even the hippie movement. When we got, get into the 70s and the 80s, the explosion of gang violence. In the 90s, at the end of the Cold War, you had a end, essentially, as they called, as Francis Fukuyama called it, the end of history, as liberal democracy prevailed over communism and authoritarianism. But what did grow in the absence of great power politics, which has returned in the 24th century, well, the 21st century, excuse me, <laughs> it's not the 24th century, um, the 21st century, we saw an increase and a return to this notion of ethno-nationalism. Um, with the increase of globalization, you see further clashings between urban and rural. When you see the, the kind of the pure definitions of globalization and what it, it seeks to, to do, it seems that a lot of these these right wing movements or white extremist movements, not just here in the United States, but just across the Western world, primarily now in countries like Germany um, and Hungary and Poland and, and to to a degree France um, and even in the United Kingdom, that the continuation of the expansion of globalization now incorporating mass media uh, you know, social media platforms it's the power of the state as being the sole benefactor of providing collective security not just physical security but economic security financial security uh, social social protection and social security is part of the welfare there's some health security um, environmental security it seems that that's no longer the case. Just as globalization has provided us with extensive, very extensive uh, benefits, whether that's much more openness uh, to once distant civilizations and cultures and much more now integrated um, global population. Um, what we also see through globalization and the easing of the the apparatus of the state when it comes to certain dynamics of security um, as well as even economics is that we're having an, a growth of transnational uh, problems that's undermining this notion of the American experiment uh, it's in my opinion that we we have a a very necessary and important um, 
decision to make regarding the drafting of a new consensus, a new Bretton Woods, a new understanding of the geopolitical world. The American experiment is just that, it's an experiment. Every four years, we endure on a new chapter in our country and there's always the the conversations going on every four years the goal is this the end of the american experiment oh the beauty of america is that although its constitution is old its institutions brittle at the end of the day it's checks and balances that we always scoff at or disapprove of when it appears to not be working. Works. It works. And we've seen that through the tumultuous times since November 3rd. If the United States, now under President Joe R. Biden is going to seek to reestablish the United States as a model, then the the bureaucratic mindset, the cultural mindset of the bureaucracy, which is only intended to maintain the status quo, has to be changed. And that goes on all levels of government. United States and the American experiment has to become much more pragmatic than ideological. How we view war must change. How we view victory must change. How we view ourselves as a nation must change. And these are some serious questions and serious self-reflections that have to be had. You have individuals say, well, you know, the United States is not as racist as it once was. Or, you know, we dealt with racism in the 1960s or the the election of Barack Obama for two terms was the remedy to American racism. Oh, that's a crack of bull. It's not. It's not true. You know, my grandmother was born in 1962. Racism is very much still alive and well. It's not an old problem. It's a generational problem. It is. And we saw that during the past four years. It is a generational problem. And not even just a generational problem, but it is an American structural problem. It is an institutional problem. Institutions are built upon practice, you know, societal traditions and cultures and cultural understandings and mindsets um, that predate the formation of institutions. I mean, the notions of the police force is derived from the fugitive slave laws. At the end of the day, the American experiment is one that is exceptional and it is unique to the United States. It is not experiment that can be you know 
implemented or forced upon other cultures and traditions that you know our way of life is completely alien to i mean during the cold war we've made exceptions on what we demanded from particular countries because they are they were of strategic value against the soviet union liberal liberalism is not going to be the remedy to all countries problems it's not granted we can advocate for better treatment of, of of humans uphold rule of law uphold human rights advocate for human rights and demonstrate the the stability and the uniqueness of the united states around the world through international organizations non-government organizations humanitarian initiatives and if need be in some cases actual military intervention But the 21st century plays by a different set of rules. We see that in Iran, where they've been much more provocative in their, um, in their military posturing. We see that in, um, we see that in Russia with the promotion of hypersonic missiles and um, cyber operations and counterintelligence not just for defensive but also offensive means you see that with Chinese neo-mercantilism in Africa in the Middle East in South America and Central America we see that in North Korea with their increased technological advancements in cyber warfare ballistic missiles nuclear and conventional we see that in trans-Sahelian terrorism and insurgency warfare We see that the 21st century is not based off of conventional security understandings or conventional military confrontations and prowess. It's not. And the reason for that is because we're much more economically and financially interconnected than any time in, in history. Even this is the year 1500 when we really started to see the, the growth of industrialization and the boom of wealth. We can thank England for that. But at the end of the day, warfare is much more keen to be done in ones and zeros, dollar signs and RMBs and rubles and any other type of currencies that may be available. Uh, Euros pounds, whatever the case may be. They're much more willing, not much more willing, but there's a higher chance of it to be asymmetric in the sense that it is of low risk to conduct with high outcome and results. Privatization of military, we see that with Russia, with the Wagner Group. Wagner Group has about 19 quote-unquote offices across Africa. They're currently in the Central African Republic uh, dealing with electoral violence. We see the IRGC Kutz Force integrating the remnants of with parts of the Middle East that has not agreed to Trump's Middle East peace plan. 
to increase the stakes and establish their physical Shia border from Tehran to Beirut and into some cases Sana'a with the Baba al-Mandab Strait as a means to increase the risk against American allies in the region and American naval prowess in the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. We're seeing an increased confrontation between China and India, not just physically in the Himalayas, ground forces, uh, but also naval strategies, much more Mahanian, and the notion of needing a massive military, a navy in particular, to dominate central economic and trade flow, uh, trade flows maritime-wise. Um, so for China, that's the South China Sea, um, as well as the just the overall Asia-Pacific region. Excuse me. Uh, all of that to circumvent the what they call the Malacca Dilemma, which is in the advent of an actual armed conflict and confrontation with the United States. The United States has the means, not just the regional allies, but also just the sheer size of tonnage and their naval uh, capacity to implement a constriction operation on the Strait of Malacca uh, to choke China from its, uh, its imports, primarily energy imports through the Strait of Malacca in a way to fundamentally weaken the Chinese military industrial complex um, and to ensure that China is not able to exert its influence um, in the region. But the number one problem to the American experiment is not foreign. Well, it never really was foreign as much as American propaganda has been able to successfully demonstrate that our enemies our greatest of enemies are overseas. The greatest enemy to the American experiment is ourselves. It's always been ourselves. There's been a, a warning since the days of George Washington that we ought to be warrior factions. Not even just factions, but just also entanglement in foreign affairs and that we should not go overseas to find monsters, as John Quincy Adams stated um, as an expansion to George Washington's farewell address in regards to the notions of why the United States has to remain rather not just isolationist but also to steer away from old world politics. And old world politics that culminates in European politics to an extent now you can kind of say even Eurasian politics when you're talking about Russia. Um, but now as we're seeing thanks to Mackinder is that Eurasia and once he did his uh, kind of a, an updated version to his original geopolitical pivot um, article, well, small book, includes that of Africa into the the Eurasian plain as kind of like this physical land island that those who control that island is one that, dis that essentially controls the destiny of the world, the future of the world, the true power. And that is up to the peripheral states, so the United States. United Kingdom or essentially the naval powers to essentially contain a particular power from dominating these physical regions. At that time, we were talking about Germany and we were talking about Russia. We were talking about China 
China was going through their own complications during the times of Mackinder. Um, however, now we see China and Central Asia. We see Russia, Central Asia. We see China and Russia in Africa. We see China and Russia in the Middle East. We see Russia returning and encroaching, not just in the Balkans, but also in Eastern Europe. The American experiment is one that is promoted through the nuances of our culture. That is the actual power of the United States, our culture, ever since the Marshall Plan. Yes, we have arguably the greatest military in the world, the most technologically advanced military in the world, hands down. But as we constantly continue to see that our military is great in the conventional sense. And over the past 20 or so years, especially in observing this, the operations and the conducting military operations in Iraq, in Afghanistan, our adversaries have observed American military weaknesses, our blind spots and vulnerabilities. And through that, they utilize that research in addition to uh, corporate espionage and cyber attacks to gather information on our particular projects. They utilize that to then establish New military technologies, new military operations, new military doctrines like the Gerasimov Doctrine uh, as a way to counter the United States in ways that they know that we are not prepared for. So the American experiment, there's many components to it that has to be seriously recalibrated for the future. The difference between our system and our way of thinking and that of China or that of Russia is that there are much more long-term thinkers, strategic thinkers, and how they're going to position themselves in the world. Our strategies, over the, even though our overall grand strategy has been the same since Woodrow Wilson um, and that of liberal internationalism, which was kind of represented at the Treaty of Versailles, um, and then really catapulted since FDR, and it really doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, a neoconservative, uh, a nationalist, or whatever the case may be. Here in the United States, the overall arching guiding principle has always been liberal internationalism, the promotion of the American experiment overseas. That tends to change at least interpretation of how it should be implemented every four years or even every two years depending on who wins midterm elections. So it's very difficult for the United States to really establish a long-term strategy to contain and combat our adversaries both non-state and state when our policies change every two or every four years compared to China before Xi Jinping it was once every 10 years. Now Xi Jinping is president for life. So whatever it is that his long-term future goal is, especially now the China gene for 2049 slash 2050, um, as they call it, the 100-year marathon, in order, in order to, um, to overcome the century of humiliation, um, that is their long-term strategy. They are set to utilize their resources through state capitalism, or they call it uh, socialist market economies or socialism with Chinese characteristics 
they're ready to use that to adjust their resources in order to ensure that whatever their long-term strategy is, that is what needs to be accomplished at the end of the day. And through that, China has been able to establish a soft power, or the Chinese experiment, I guess, of patience, of wealth, or the notion of absolute sovereignty. I'm not going to tell you what to do or how to govern your people. I'm not even going to lecture you on human rights. We just want, as they say, prosperity and peace. No. If you understand the Chinese mindset and, and its relation to the American experiment, China, Chinese policies and the strategies, especially in how they, they write their policies, whether that's in government sessions or, in, or actual memos and initiatives, it all goes back to the warring states. A lot of their proverbs, or at least political proverbs, as well as defense proverbs, not just Sun Tzu, but also goes back to the warring states which is essentially a period of like 750 years. Um, the Back when Kissinger and Nixon were going towards China to kind of reopen, or not reopen, but essentially establish a relationship with the Chinese as a way to deter um, the growth and encroachment of the Soviet Union in Asia, um, so in life, uh, who was at the time the Chinese foreign minister uh, for Mao Zedong, stated that China views the United States, primarily Nixon, as Ba. I know when so in life was asked about that, and he said, "Oh well, Ba means you know you're the leader, your initiative. You know China is not going to test the United States. The United States is." the hegemon, the, the great power post-World War II. Um, but that's not really what Ba means. Ba is a hegemon. And if you go back to the warring states, especially in Chinese culture and Chinese history, hegemons tend to be overthrown through military uh, campaigns. To understand the Chinese soft power mechanism is to understand deception, deceit. Strategic illusions. The very, one of the very weaknesses of the American society is our open society mechanisms, our cultures, our liberal culture, you know, the, the free marketplace of ideas, bureaucratic or institutional transparency, openness, economic openness, social openness. That which, which has empowered the United States is the same thing that has demonstrated in the 21st century to weaken the United States. But it's only weakened because we have not adjusted yet to the mentalities of the 21st century. Most of those who are still in power in the United States are from the Cold War era, black and white. The mentality is black and white. But the 21st century does not operate on black and white, right or wrong. It operates on maybes, probabilities, the gray area. Iran knows this. Our adversaries knows this. 
terrorists know this. They all know this. <laughs> Even the white nationalists that stormed the Capitol on January 6th, they know this. For the most part, they benefited from the very same institutions. Well, granted, yes, big tech companies have, are you know silencing them in order to halt the disinformation wave through echo chambers, well, echo chambers, and across uh, you know social media platforms. However, this new administration, although yes, it is the most diverse cabinet administration in American history. It has to put that same mentality aggressively into understanding the new nature of geopolitics. It has to. The United States cannot abandon Sub-Saharan Africa or the, the Sahel region of Africa for reasons such as Nigeria by 2050 is expected to be the third most populous country in the world. By the year 2100, half of global births are expected to come from Sub-Saharan Africa. The median age in Sub-Saharan Africa is around 18. And the, and the average birth rate in Sub-Saharan Africa is about 4.6 up to 5. So the average African Sub-Saharan African woman has on average almost 5 children. Yet at the same time, the countries of Sub-Saharan Africa, primarily in Sahelia and West Africa, are fragile. Borders are porous. Unfortunately, they are located on historical, antiquitous, transnational smuggling or trade routes. Insurgents that were defeated in the Middle East are now moving into Sub-Saharan Africa, especially after the, the toppling and assassination of Muammar Gaddafi. We have an existential security crisis, economic crisis, social crisis in Africa, in which if the United States were to prioritize the continent, would be able to demonstrate the beauty and the strength and the power of the American experiment model for so far a bottom-up socioeconomic revolution, essentially, a development in Africa rather than China's top-down absolute sovereignty model which at first was very attractive to authoritarian countries especially in the developing world however the debt entrapment policies and strategy of the chinese has demonstrated that especially in africa china is not open to actual enrichment and expansion of the african workforce if that was the case they would invest in infrastructure towards a permanent African workforce and not dispatch their own I mean, millions of Chinese into Africa. In fact, China is investing in natural resource extraction. They're investing in the development of harbors and interconnectivity um, networks, whether that's rails, new roads that go directly from natural resource places to the ports that they know that these countries cannot pay for so they seize them at 99 year lease that only further exacerbates the problem
So what we have in our hands in the 21st century for the American experiment is a very tough and difficult trajectory. Very tough. It's not going to be easy, especially after the past four years. There is low confidence now in the American capabilities, soft American capabilities. It can't always be military. It cannot. The State Department has to be developed. It has to be expanded. Interdepartmental, interagency cooperation has to happen. Yeah, you know, State Department, Department of Defense, Department of Treasury, they all have their different, um, you know, they have their own different reasons, modus operandi, uh, means of operations or reasons for operations. But when it comes down to the very essence of government, the ultimate priority is to make sure that the basic needs of all its citizens are met. Granted, yes, yeah, self-interest gets in the way, but the number one reason for government and a social contract by lock is that we willingly give up certain things in a contract as in an understanding to the government in a consensus that you provide basic goods and services to the people as well as collective security however not to the extent that it is to be abused for the subjugation of those that consent to the authority of the government and that in the case that the government does abuse and veer towards that of tyranny as we see in the Bill of Rights then the people have the right to up and remove and implement a government that is conducive to the legitimacy and the continuation of the social contract. That is also a backbone of the American experiment. If we can move and demonstrate, especially down under President Joseph Biden, if we can demonstrate to the world that the essence of America is back, that the essence of the experiment is back, that liberal democracies are indeed as stable as we think, then the United States once again is able to prolong itself. And Washington, D.C. is able to demonstrate itself to be a shining city upon a hill. As Reagan stated in his reference to the Sermon on the Mount from the Bible. We have a lot of work to do over the next four years. And because this is a very interesting time, I think what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a very particular episode on the, the January 6th insurrection, insurrection. <clears throat> and demonstrate how this is rather the beginning of an insurgency rather than the end of a movement. I think that's going to be something that I may record tomorrow. Um, 
also kind of now the kind of gear way to administrative stuff. Excuse me. I've officially established a a YouTube channel for the pivot, which will not just have the audio, but also will have visuals. Um, and from there, um, you know, just as we do here on the podcast, we'll have guest speakers, uh, monologues such as this, dialogues, group discussions, uh, kind of talking about. What are some ongoing trends? Do some analysis work, do some historical discussions, um, and kind of really try to unravel the twenty first century era geopolitics. Very fascinating, very fascinating. Look at the conditions of the the American experiment. I think that's where we're you know where, where we're going to be heading for the next few episodes or so. But we are going to have, we're also going to talk about. Actually, no, I'm not going to tell you because we actually have some very good um, discussions that are coming in the next couple of days and weeks. So I won't I won't spoil those, but I wanted to do this episode as a reintroduction um, to what we do why we're doing it and where we're going to go from here it was a long hiatus I had to take for um, analysis reasons observing what was going on but now I think that I have some understanding we're back and we're ready to go so with that this is Samaj McDowell and I will see you very very soon